Welcome to Bab Pod Die, a Babylon Project miniseries about the comic book Die, where we tumble through feelings about RPGs and some terrible British nerds. I'll be your game master, Justin, and joining me are my two players, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how you doing? A lot better now that I've solved my miscellaneous tech problems, hopefully for the duration of recording. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, I have just returned, appropriately enough, from Oxenmoot 50, which is the, uh, well, Oxenmoot is the annual Tolkien convention in Oxford, England, uh, and this year was the 50th instant thereof. So I feel like I am very well prepared for this particular recording. Oh, listen, this, this issue three is literally the reason that I was like, Jude is going to die doing this series. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 I tried to sit down and do notes for this episode, and I was like, nah, no, nah, I got... Literally in the doc, I say, you know what? I'm not even going to bother here. I have too many. Not even too many thoughts. I have too many. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just didn't take notes because I read through each of these three times basically immediately before recording, and I was like, I'm probably good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, my question for you for this episode is what is a formative piece of media that overly influences your RPG? Uh, like the, either the stories you tell on RPGs or the, or the characters you play. Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, and ironically, uh, it's related to my answer from last episode. Uh, Mage the Ascension, which was like the game of my heart I mentioned last episode. Uh, and the sister game, feel like that's the right pronoun, uh, to Vampire the Masquerade, um, that game, I bought it because it looked cool and it had the word mage and it was purple on the shelf. But that game deeply informed my idea of what kind of stories uh, you could tell for a character in a game. Um, the whole idea of mage with... What does you what does your magic say about your character? And what what is it that your character believes such that they can do magic? Like these kinds of questions like really fucked me up with regards to like building characters and designing stories for characters. And for me, I am like I, I'm like, what what is the answer for this? I'm I'm trying to think of something good for this. Cause I like honestly I've read and watched, etc. so much stuff that I feel like a lot of it feeds in. I I think that like, at least in terms of what I envision when I like go to play or run a game is essentially like ensemble TV shows. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The, like the, the idea of like, you know, having, having individual character development, but then like alongside that, you know, just as important is developing relationships between the characters. Um, Often when I actually play, it's with a group of chaos goblins who all run in separate directions. I have no idea what that would be like. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as much as I profess myself to be a chaos goblin, I'm actually an, I'm actually an order Muppet. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm thinking more of all the games I've ever played that you've run where, uh, you just stare at me while I'm running off with your storyline like some sort of rabid <laughs> raccoon. 
yeah. Um, but yeah, like that that playing Chaos Goblin games can be a lot of fun, but like my ideal is always going to be something like, you know, something sort of like Buffy or like, you know, whatever, where you've yeah. got you've got a a cast, whether that's player, you know, whether that's PCs and PCs, and you're like, you know, there's plot, but a lot of it is developing relationships and how the relationships then interact with the plot. Um one of my favorite frameworks is from Robin D. Robin D. Laws, um, who wrote, has written a couple books. Um, I think like the the most like the the the, the, rel- the most relevant one to this conversation is called Hamlet's Hit Points, which is using which is a, it's a writing book that uses like RPG, like sort of like RPG terminology and stuff. And one of the ways that it, it, like he he dissects is like that all plots are one of two things they're your procedural like either you have a procedural scene where you are trying to fix a problem or a dramatic scene where you are trying where one person is trying to get something from another and like like these are the two like proto story like these are the two proto stories um and and you sort of devolve from that and the buffy formula is a very good like conglomeration of those two Yeah, yeah yeah like you know Sitting in 2023, there are a lot of problems with that show, um, yes. but I loved I but, loved it dearly, and we'll probably never watch it again. Yeah. But I loved it dearly. My answer to this is a lot more basic. <laughs> um, it is the X Wing books by Michael Stackpole and Aaron Alston. <laughs> I should have <laughs> like, seen that coming. There, there is no piece like there. There is like no piece of media that could. Like, if you, like, boiled me down into chemical components, you're like, oh, no, that's the way Justin is. If you, if, yeah. if when you, when in the future, when Justin's brain is taken out of its jar uh, and it finally is, is melted down, there will just be an X-wing in the middle of it. I have, I have I, the, the most self-indulgent I think I ever did was I played the X-Wing miniatures game for a while. And like the way you had it is you had like cards for your pilots. Um, and I got Michael Stackpole to sign a corn horn card, which is, did they put corn horn in that game? Yeah. He didn't fly an X-Wing though. He flew an E-Wing. Of course he did. The funniest, he's t- Cause he's so fucking extra. God. Um, but yeah, no, he was in that game. It was great. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, I, yeah. I have let's, another. Let's, I have another one here that yeah. I, Jude. I want to talk to you about, which is as something like I haven't played a lot of role playing games for a hot minute, um, but something where like whenever I get back into it, something that I has been inspiring me is the um, the the White Rat books by Ursula Vernon yeah. slash T T Kingfisher. Um, yeah, the like character nuance the the practical world building in those um where it's still very like still very much as a like pretty high fantasy feel but like there's a lot of detail in like the mundane that's that's you know that's what's currently inspiring i'd say yeah definitely i could see reading those books and having a campaign or a character spring fully formed out of them yeah or the other way around. I could see just making a game based around that the white rat. Yeah, because you could like at the very least you have the the you know paladins are not lawful stupid. Um, 
theme. Well, hold on. <laughs> they're they're not, lawful they're not... and they're stupid. They're just not lawful stupid. They're, well, I mean, I would say that they're they're not they're not stupid. They're all just like you know traumatized. <laughs> at least Fine. In those they're books. they're lawful himbo. Yes, but. Have you read these books yet, Justin? I, I, I've, I like, I literally have two of them on my shelf, and I like. Please read these I, books. I, I'm not joking. One of them, and I, I keep, and I, and it's like, it just, I keep getting dragged away, and it's, I really need to just like take a week off and just like read a couple books. Like, they're that, literally about do. an order of lawful himbo paladins. Yeah, and yeah. they're the books are literally they're like, is there plot? Yes. Is it really more about these sad nights? maybe getting to kiss somebody probably like are they going to get to kiss somebody before two-thirds to three-quarters of the book absolutely not yeah uh also they the um god what are they the uh the guys that talk to the horses the gnolls the gnolls no. are yeah. the best reinvention of a standard D race period they're so good uh I just love them so much. Anyway, this is not uh, a a white rat reread podcast yet. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about a comic book. Yeah, tonight we're covering uh, issues three and four of uh, Die, which are Dungeons and the Inn. Um, For both of these, they are written by Kieran Gillen, art by Stephanie Hans, letters by Clayton Cowell. Um, so we start, uh, issue three dungeons. Our quote for this is from HG Wells. You only have to play at little wars three or four times to realize what a blundering thing great war must be. Um, for a little bit of context with that HG Wells being among many things, a writer was also a game designer. Um, he created a game called little wars, um, it is, um, Little Wars is possibly the first miniature war game. Um, Wild. Um, it is, um, basically he had like little bronze cast soldiers that he like played that, like that he had. Um, and that's, this is all devised from Prussian war games, um, called Kriegspiel. Um, which was how, which was a way that the Prussian army trained officers is that they, is they had like little block and chip war games that they would play to teach officers strategy. Wells took that and made his own game, uh, for like playing with miniatures as a way to try to teach about the horrors of war. Whoops. Um, he and now we have Warhammer 40k. Yeah. Um, so funny thing is that like Little Wars is like has like pers- persisted for a really long time. This is just because we're we're going on this tangent. I and it's it's one of those things that I need to. There is a very specific. There is a very popular figure in sci-fi history who played Little Wars and loved painting miniatures. It is. Uh, Gosh, what's his name? Peter Cushing. It's Peter Cushing. There is a delightful documentary about like, like Peter Cushing with like painting minis and like war gaming. Also Henry Cavill for that matter. Yeah. yeah. But 
I don't think Henry Cavill played like he didn't specifically play Little Wars, which is like it's just a weird historical note that like, you know, like like 80 years after this book was written, like yeah. it was still being like played by people, Fascinating. Uh, which is wild. Um, I look forward to being added by Silver arguing that uh, Warhammer will be played in 80 years. I'm sure it will. <laughs> Unfortunately. So we, after deciding to go to the front and not Angria, we open on the landscape of the front, which is a war zone between eternal Prussia and little England. Um, it is a desolate blasted hellscape, which is evocative of world war one with strange and terrible war machines, uh, that are hinted at. Um, there is even, um, we start off with, the party being confronted by a metallic Prussian dragon, um, complete with like a death's head, like on its chest. Um, the uh, Angela starts to fight the dragon, and a god na- uh, named Mistress Woe warns Isabella for a price of an incoming artillery barrage. In the chaos of the fire, the party is split, and Ash ends up in a trench. Uh, the inhabitants of the trench are soldiers of Little England, and one of them talks about how uh, the soldier next to them kept coming out into no man's land through attacks to bring them to the safety, even after he lost his eyes due to uh, poison gas. Ash explains their uh, quest to find a way home to the soldier, and the soldier remarks that it's always a wizard's mission that causes these sort of things. The, sol- the, the soldier shows Ash his ring, talking about being married, and as he is dying, asks Ash to bring a letter to his wife, Luthi. He wanted to be the first of his family to make it home from the front, but it was not meant to be. And then the master of the realm appears to talk to Ash, and Jude, do you just just, just want to, you know? It's a fictionalized, the whole thing is a, so it's a fictionalized Tolkien, and he calls this realm a, uh, an orcish version of his elfish tales. Which which is a very it's a very interesting and it's yeah. a delightful word choice. Yeah. yeah. Um, he offers to take the soldier's letter home and send it by eagle, of course, um, saying that was always his favorite solution to problems. And I have to say the the art on the panels with the with the eagle is just incredible. It really oh yeah, is. it is a like the the eagle is absolutely just like radiant that's i I think that's the best word is like it's so compared to the rest of this issue which is dark gloomy and uh very un unwelcoming it it is it's it is like those scenes in the peter jackson movies where like some like you know like when the rohirrim arrive at helm's deep like that and the term for that is you catastrophe a Thank word you. coined specifically by Tolkien for those kinds of moments that he, that he designed very carefully for his fiction. Fantastic. The the frame that really uh, like the stands out turn. to me um from that set though is the the frame where Ash is looking up at the eagle and you don't see the eagle itself but you see Ash's like look of absolute awe. <laughs> yeah. No, the art in that in that bit is unbelievable i am continuously 
stunned by how good the art is. Uh, yeah. Stephanie Hans is a fucking wizard. This this book has a relatively limited palette for a lot of the time, and the way that the, that she gets incredible pops of emotion with the with the color choice is really it's really impressive. Um, it's just stunning. Yeah. Um, one interesting one is there. There's a page where, um, and we 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 saw this in the last one where when we when we came back to the night. And the, the flashbacks had a different color, had a different color palette where it was all pinks, um, which we get a page where um, the soldier is dictating the the letter to uh, Ash, and um, it's much more get, illustrative. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's illustrative. It's also there's a lot of greens. It's, yeah, uh, it's pastoral. It's yeah, it's simple, uh, and like. Much more greens of growing things are that like we have greens in a bunch of the other pages, but they're much more like sick smoky greens. They're mm-hmm. Disney villain greens, not growing yeah. thing greens. Yeah. Yeah. Matt breaks Ash from the vision, telling uh, Ash the dragon is coming back. Their situation is dire. Angela is out of gold. Isabella is wounded. Uh, Ash tells Matt that if he was sad enough, he killed the dragon. He threatens her not to use the voice, and Ash simply shows him the horror of the trench and asks, Do you think we're going home? Ash tells Matt to kill the dragon, which he does. Um, which is one of my uh, favorite uh, lines of, Do you think I need the voice to make someone feel miserable here? Yeah, it's a fucking dark moment. It's very, yeah. very heavy. Yeah. It's intense. He is able to kill the dragon, and in the aftermath, they need to recover and set out for Glass Town. Our ending is on the eagle itself, uh, which is shot down by Prussian troops. Uh, A Prussian officer takes the letter from the eagle and burns it before ordering a squad into action, telling them you know where you have to go, you can simply walk there. So I actually have a question on that page. Yeah. Are those Prussian troops are, or are those little England troops that shoot down the eagle? I took it as being, um, I took it as being Prussian troops, but that was. I, it is left ambiguous. Okay. I don't uh, think it matters yeah. in a lot of ways. Because the, the style of the uniforms is pretty close to what we see on the it little is. England yeah. soldiers. So I, I think it could I think it could go either way, honestly. Yeah. Um, my interpretation was that the the wizards uh, sending yeah that that the the higher ups in Little England were intercepting it so that the people back home would not learn of the trench. Yeah, yeah maybe. That, that makes sense. I yeah, I like looking at it now, and it's like yeah, they they do like the the uniforms do look similar. I I just I like I I think I eternally associated it with like gray Prussia, but no, yeah. that makes total sense. Like yeah. I I yeah, uh, I think it could be it could be either, and like it doesn't even matter. Both are horrifying. Yeah. yeah, I think it's I think it is necessary to call out the back matter in this episode or in this issue because yes. I think it's it's really really interesting to read Gillen's 
thought process in this when he writes in in the letter at the back talking about his view on Tolkien and how it cha- how it informed the development process for the comic and how it changed in the process of researching the comic because I think it's very very interesting and informative uh, to read that. So if you're reading along, if you're reading these comics along with us and you skipped that, go back and read it. It was interesting to me because reading it, I identified without him ever saying it exactly which biography of Tolkien he read Uh, (laughs) simply from context clues based on what, on what he was saying about Tolkien. Uh, For the record, it was Tolkien and the Great War by the excellent John Garth, a book I recommend everyone interested in Tolkien reads. Uh, It is incredibly readable as compared to the incredibly dense uh, official uh, official biography. And there is also a version on Audible read by the author who has an incredibly listenable voice. He's British and has a very nice accent. Uh, John Garth is a fucking dope dude and uh, his research methodologies for sort of like cross indexing Tolkien's life, looking at like, well, at this time in his life, we know he hung out with this guy who had this book, which contains this thing. And then Tolkien wrote this thing. And therefore we know he actually was thinking about this at this time is uh, he's really a luminary in the field when it comes to trying to like echo locate what Tolkien's thought process was at a given time. Uh, And Tolkien in the Great War does a phenomenal job of tracking Tolkien's life and the evolution of his early works. And that's how I can tell that he was reading Tolkien in the Great War, because he mentions Tolkien's early poetry and his past, his his love of the pastoral coming from his Mm. move to Birmingham. Um, Yeah, it's a fucking dope book. Read that book, for real. Uh, Anyway... Yeah, this issue is very deeply informed by Gillen's relationship with Tolkien from a genre standpoint. He even calls out my, he seems to like, uh, what's his name's fucking, um, oh, what's his name? Pretentious butthole. Moorcox thing. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I find Moorcock's essay to be small-minded and petulant because nothing he writes is as good as Tolkien and he knows it. And he resents that Tolkien defined the genre he writes in and uh, nothing he writes will ever define a genre, but that's just me. But I appreciate that. Like one of the things I really like is when you can read someone's thoughts on a subject (laughs) and see the evidence of someone's thoughtfulness and finesse in thinking about that subject. Uh, especially with Tolkien, uh, and I swear I'm going to get off my soapbox here and let other people talk in, in a second. Um, Tolkien occupies this very weird place in genre where everybody knows the effects he had on the field and very few people actually know a fuck all about him, the person. Can I, can I pull a Terry Pratchett quote from this? Yeah, please. Um, so this is not this is not a Discworld quote, but uh, Terry Pratchett compared uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and fantasy to Mount Fuji in Japanese art. Um, yep. In that, it, whenever you look at Japanese art, you, there Mount Fuji is usually a component there, mostly because of it, it's a very prominent thing in landscapes. 
Um, it's a very, very big landmark in Japan. Um, and Pratchett's thing is that either is that even the absence of Mount Fuji from a from like a landscape painting indicates that someone made the conscious choice not to include it. Yeah, <laughs> and that even and it is, but even then it is it is still usually in the background. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting to read Gillen's thoughts because it really does show that he his research is really intense on this mm-hmm. stuff, and I really respect it. Respect that. I really respect that because, uh, like I said, you don't get everybody. Like I said, Tolkien people un, people read the Lord of the Rings, but not everybody dives into the the how did it happen? Where did it come from? Yeah. How did this thing become what it is? And the like the history of it. And that's fine. I'm not expecting people to, but also don't take a swing if you if you don't know what you're if you're swinging at. And that seems to be a popular activity amongst shitty modern fantasy writers who uh, seem to think that being grimdark is a replacement for writing well. I think it's a very important thing that like Gillen, you know, I, I think that they're, I think it's like baby's first Tolkien analysis is, well, Tolkien was writing about World War II and it's no Tolkien was influenced by the first World War and was writing in reaction to it. And I Gillen is a very clever writer and I think the the way that this this is my favorite issue in maybe the entire series mm-hmm. um because of what it does and yeah. I like after after Ash writes finished writing the letter the character which is supposed to be it's supposed to be Frodo it's uh it says spring never comes and then Tolkien or the Tolkien fictionalization says in a hole in the ground, there died an Englander. And the next four or five panels, no matter how many times I read this comic book, it is the one thing that I can read every time and it will get me to, like, I'm doing it now, like, get me to tear up a little bit because it's just... it's the, Yeah, it's it's intense. It's the most yeah. perfect inversion. Yeah. Audie, if if <laughs> we we've we've done our I think our opening salvos for this so <laughs> oh I just want I just wanted to ping briefly off of the the Moorcock um thing which apparently he's still alive and writing not anything good motherfucker but it's Sorry. it's fun it's funny because like <laughs> I'm sure you know, it's actually fine I just no, well I'm salty because he took a swing at my boss go ahead <laughs> well what's funny to me is like. I I remember reading a shit ton of like Elric books and stuff like that when I was like a tween. And I remember nothing about any of them um, other than I read them. But versus like, you know, reading a lot of Tolkien at the same time and like that's seared on my memory. Well, so not to be too sarcastic, the Elric series is, is fun and fine. But there's a there's a there is a phenomenal difference between creating something that is okay. All right, you did it. Now I got it. Now I'm pulling out my alphabet. <laughs> I mean, this, this is why you're on this podcast. I mean, this is okay. why we're doing this series is because I, I wanted I want your reactions to this because it's so Tolkien defines something called subcreation, and he so there's a there's a famous essay. Tolkien got up once 
and gave a speech, gave a talk called On Fairy Stories, where he basically stood up and in front of a bunch of people who had come out to hear him talk about this guy, I forget his name, it's not important. Uh, he stood up and dumped on like traditional English fairy stories, like the petite flower fairies. And instead, rather than talk about that, that kind of thing, he gave a treatise on like the purpose of fantasy. And one of the things he expounded on was the idea of subcreation. And this is the idea of like how, how an author can take all the ideas, all the things that, things that they like and enjoy and put them into a pot and melt them down and come up with something new. And that subcreation can be different from our world. The grass can be purple. The sky can be red. And through fantasy, you can imagine those things and you can subcreate. And he was in a very real religious way, like using that create with a capital C. Like this was not a, he was not using that word lightly is I mm -hmm. guess the point I want to emphasize here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so part of the reason I personally believe that Tolkien's stuff hits the way it does. Tolkien's stuff is a sub-creation. He was taking from so many sources. You can never, anytime anybody tells you, oh, this is a this, they're almost always wrong. There are exceptions. <laughs> like Turin Turinbar is basically just a guy from Finnish Tales with the numbers filed off. And there are a couple dragons that are just like, I, I have maintained on Athrobeth for a very long time. Tolkien just thought dragons were fucking dope and yeah, would stick no, them anywhere he could, which I respect. Who can, I can't argue with I, that. I mean, even, but even I, the, even the, the comic that we just read, like vibes into that of like, you know, dragons are essential. Dragons are rare. Everyone loves dragons until you meet one. Everyone yeah. loves dragons. They're dope. Yeah. Uh, but Part of what made Tolkien stuff unique is he just poured everything into this pot and let it brew and came out with something that was his and unique and deep. And when you write that versus something that is a reaction to that, and that's the problem. That is the thing that has been, I think for very many years was part of why so much that was written in the fantasy genre felt very bland mm -hmm. is because a lot of what was being written was not itself trying to subcreate, but was instead simply a, uh, a, a, a mime or, or an aping or a teenage petulant reaction to Tolkien's work. An orcish mockery of an elfish tale. Yeah. And no matter how well you write that, it won't feel right. And I think it speaks to one of the things I like about Die is you can see all the 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 way that Gillen is pouring all his influences into this work, that it makes it, it feels like it's not a reaction to Tolkien, mm -hmm. that it is a reflection on him, and it is a reflection on his other influences, which is where I think a lot of why we're kind of in a golden age of fantasy right now. There's a lot of really excellent fantasy being written, mostly not by white men, you'll note, by people who are doing that kind of unique subcreation, people who are taking the stories that are unique to them and giving them a voice. 
Yeah. Rather than just writing their own their their own shitty version of Tolkien. Oh, but wait, my elves' eyes are purple. I like this is a thing that genuinely people have been trying to claim for the last like 20, 30 years is like why you should read their fucking shitty Tolkien ripoff. It gets my goat. Anyway. I, I know I know that Justin and I keep harping on this, but my dude, you really gotta read Discworld. Like yes, you gotta I'm aware. read Discworld. Yeah. Like I, th- I think please. It, it is if if we have to restart Discpod where we make you sit down and read every single one of them with us, I will fucking do it. <laughs> oh man, I'm not reading color magic again. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we can we can, we can uh, start at like guards or something. Yeah, i I think it's i I think like something that like die in particular is it sort of rejoices in I think is the fact that like the world of die is created by teenage fantasies and mm-hmm. and like the Tolkien stuff is is interesting because I mean I, I think that. I think that this is maybe not what a night like a a sixteen year old in nineteen ninety one would have created if they were doing a Tolkien bit, unless they were reading some very specific books. Yeah, um, which who knows? Maybe Saul was reading those books. Yeah, it, that's actually a really interesting point and something I was going to ask. Is I feel like this it raises a question to me about how much independent life the world has outside of its teenage creators. Yeah, yeah, like for for me at least, like it's very much not clear to me at this point whether the world of die is something that Saul created or whether it's something that existed that Saul tapped into. Yeah. <laughs> Justin, finger Justin's making here. finger guns well. at the at the camera here. <laughs> that apparently is an astute question. Yeah, noted. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I. Yeah, and I, like something that I just enjoy about it because it's like, like a lot of the things that it's like, yeah, a 1991 teenage, like goth teenager would have been like obsessed with is like it, it never like sometimes the characters are like, yeah, this is a little silly or a little dumb, but from like a meta point, it's never, it's never pointing the finger. It's always like, you know, having conversations yeah. yeah. It, instead of in opposition to it. The ca- the characters may have an opinion about something, but the book doesn't. The the book is a reflection of the the time and the place and the genre is is sort of reflecting on all of those things, but it doesn't it's not saying Tolkien or Moorcock or traditional fantasy or whatever is stupid. It's but certainly, the some of the characters with their viewpoints may say that. Yeah. Or D&D, for that matter. I think all of them think D&D is stupid. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, they, they wanted to, like, I mean, they, they were, when they played this, that's like, they were trying to get something that wasn't D&D. I like that there's, like, it's clear that a little bit of time has happened between this issue, like, this issue and the last one. Yeah. And they've apparently been trucking through this for a while, but there's, and we get, uh, Reference to things like, oh, hey, we, we we were we were sheltering in the shell of a castle when Angel spotted some fair gold. She went to grab it and a Prussian mech patrol star uh, spotted her. Yeah. So based off of that, I think that the I think that the end is Little Englanders because I think okay. Prussia is all mechs. I don't think they're people. 
Okay. Yeah. That that makes sense, especially with what we will see in next, not, not next issue. I think issue five. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it holds with the over this, the sort of over uh, simplification and organization of Tolkien's story that we see in this, in this here, mm-hmm. the, uh, the idea that, you know, the little Englanders are the basically idealized. Hobbit world war war one yeah. and their enemy is pure is, is Tolkien's fears about industrialization up taken up to 11. Yeah. What a, like it's an art thing. And I know I, 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 I am, oversimplifying it here but every time i like see the flashback with the letter and i see the lion poster i always think narnia even though i know like no the lion is like <laughs> this is a popular war like this is this is like this is riffing off a specific england wartime recruitment poster uh but i still can't help but think about <laughs> narnia yeah i mean it's hard not to yeah. especially in a tolkien context it's hard not to link the two of them yeah so also just reading through, like, I read, you know, I read through it and then I read through it a couple of other times, you know, a couple more times. And just like from the point where you get the first dialogue, like everything is Tolkien. We've got fair or foul. We've got um, the, you know, I would have liked to see, I always wanted to see an elf. Um, yep. The references that, across the, across it are really, really poignant. Yeah, my gaffer would have my guts for garters if I let them get hurt. Yep. It's that was the one that tipped that like tipped me off was that line right there. Like World War One always will be a Tolkien reference to me. Yeah. Like that's kind of where my head is after all these years. Like dr- not even like dragons don't even feel like a Tolkien reference as strongly as World <laughs> War One does, which is that's, that's, very backwards. I appreciate that's very, for, that's very you though. I I, I appreciate No, that. yeah. But Fair or foul didn't set me off right away, but uh, when uh, he says, uh, I always wanted to see an elf, uh, that was like, oh, fuck. Okay, we're doing that. And then he mentions yeah. the gaffer, and I was like, scrolling back to like... <laughs> and the, yeah. and the, uh, the, the hobbits are going to war in groups of four, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both, both where we see them in the trench and in the little epilogue there. I do also like the the, the point where Tolkien, for lack of a, the, the master of the realm, tells Ash who I mean, uh, you can see in like the art that she's been crying a little bit. Mm-hmm. Tells Ash that you're not entirely foul, which yeah. I think that like I think especially like at, like the, the like sort of bracketing like between with the knight in the first in the last issue and what'll happen with the dragon and Matt like I think Ash is beating themselves up a little bit yeah I think Ash is in a shitty position and this is purely on vibes I have no evidence to back this up but it feels like Ash is in a shitty position where their power sucks it is an abusive power that can't be used nicely. Yeah. And yeah. they are in a shitty world that demands they use it so that they can try and get out of there. And whether or not they are a, a good person, this world is going to make them be 
as much of a garbage, as much of a foul person as as it can make them be. And unlike the others who, with the possible exception of what's his name, the douchebag Chuck fool, <laughs> Chuck, Chuck, yeah. Chuck is maybe the only other one in the group who is as at risk of being dragged, of being contaminated by the world as thoroughly as Ash is. Because Ash can't help but abuse the very people she's there to protect. That's like what her power does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, whereas Chuck's just a shitty person. And without his friends to rein him in, I suspect he would just never go home and would just turn into a garbage monster on that the, world. My favorite, like, this is a very Ash focused issue. But something I do love is like the like Chuck doesn't even like Chuck gets like two lines this, but when the dragon comes in and is about to breathe fire, everybody else takes cover and Chuck is just like, <laughs> I don't care, and he comes out completely unscathed and decides I'm gonna go I'm gonna go bait a dragon. Yeah, um, and he's completely unscathed because that is how the fool works. Yeah, <laughs> I'm excited to talk about the next one because it gets messy about gender. Yeah. And I have questions about that. Yeah. Oh, the one thing I do like is that I we, we get like a we get a we see it a lot of this one, but I, I like Ash's footwear. Like the weird yeah. strappy. Oh, yeah. well, you know what it reminds me the of? The gladiator sandals. No. Uh, I mean, yes, but no. Um do you remember um the singer girlfriend from um uh, the movie about the shitty person who beats up his girlfriend's ex-boyfriends. Scott Pilgrim? Scott Pilgrim. Uh, Envy Adam. <laughs> uh, Envy, what's her name? Uh, Brie Larson's character. Brie Larson's character. She has yeah. those exact, like, strappy sandal things and dress. She looks just like Ash in this, actually. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, will, I will say that I, I count myself uh, fortunate to have purposefully not consumed any Scott Paladin uh or no scott god damn. I have, no we love scott paladin <laughs> yes uh, i have i count myself fortunate scott paladin to have never, good scott yeah. pilgrim dubious yes i yes i i count myself fortunate to have never like by choice never consumed any scott pilgrim content i well i'll, I'll say I this my, i think my relationship with this is complicated <laughs> here's what i will say about it the music from the movie is pretty fucking good <laughs> when you're reaching when you're reaching for that we know we know that it's uh and when you didn't even remember I mean, like the name of so, the movie that's not a rousing so, okay well i'm just this saying is, this is a delightful mess uh we're gonna move on to issue four which is the end which has a surprise source for the quote for this issue uh which is charlotte bronte It is not easy to dismiss from my imagination the images which have filled it so long. And if you're wondering why Charlotte Bronte is getting quoted in a thing about RPGs, it's a surprise quote that will come in handy later. (laughs) So the group has been trekking across the front to Glasstown, which is the first city of Dai, where the first people arose. Previously, there were just faceless, characterless armies that were smashing together. And Glasstown is trapped between Eternal Prussia and Little England. It is a city that is trapped in a 20-sided prism. 
Hmm. Okay, okay, this is subtle. And in fact, statues of Sol line the streets. The guards recognize them as the Paragons and invite them in. Uh, the group is celebrated as returning heroes, people who will take down the Grand Master. And the council of the city will look in, into helping them get to 20, which is the Grand Master's realm. Isabel is taken to the Temple of the Mourner to heal, while the rest of the group drinks, obviously. They're all British. So, I mean, <laughs> makes sense. Uh, the Mourner heals Angela, but in, pen, in payment, she is asked to read a sermon to her followers, which are her high school diaries. And truly, <laughs> I would just say, fucking kill me. <laughs> I, like, I don't care. Is it going to be long? Is it going to be suffering? Is it going to be painful? That is fine. You could not make me read what I wrote in high school to, out loud in public. In, in front of an audience of people who think it's, it's like brilliant and insightful. Yeah. Right? Because that, like, makes it worse. Who who treated as scripture. Yeah. Like, that just amps it up to 11. Yeah. Absolutely. At the bar, the group drinks of two dwarves, dour and delighted. So they're just happy and mopey. (laughs) (laughs) Matt is asked to tell a story of heroism, and he tells them how he lost his mother to a freak accident in surgery. His daughter, then, at the age of five, had to have a routine surgery, and he tells about how he had to be brave for his daughter. Seeking to change the mood, Chuck says, Hey, why are, hey Ash, why are you only interested in boys when we're a die? What's up with that? Hey. Yeah, not, not <laughs> subtle, man. Yeah. Ash um, says, I don't know, hey, let's change the subject. What up with gender? Uh, Angela uh, breaks down as she reveals that she's being overwhelmed by having an arm again and that she has too much going on at home. Uh, she says there's one thing, there's one like cybernetic implant that she hasn't done yet that uh, uh, that she's back and die. With Dower providing a bit of fair gold, Angela activates, it's a robot dog. That's really all it is. It is a robot dog. Um <laughs> Based on the dog that she lost right before Ash's 16th birthday. The counselor for the city returns and reveals that, of course, to get to the Grand Master's realm, they need three keys, each in their own dungeon guarded by 12 panels of their own. They decide that they're that fuck that. We're not going on a fetch quest. We're going to break the rules. They're not going to Sol. They're going to make him come to them. They're going to destroy Glass Town. I like... Now, am I reading this correctly in that they basically have decided they're going to be villains? They're basically saying, fuck it. We're being railroaded. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> and, but, I mean, people live there, right? They're going to yeah. just destroy everyone that... Yeah. All right, cool. They, they, they have... I mean, yeah, they, they said in, like they said that they were under operating under the rules of... They're treating this as if it was real. So... <laughs> <laughs> We'll see how that goes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I sort of kind of just love the, oh, no, fuck no. We're not doing a fetch quest for this shit. <laughs> I do appreciate the, the like, blanket refusal to engage with a fetch with a fetch quest. Yeah. But, yeah, I think, like, this is the, this is sort of, like, our first time we get to see everybody, like, wind down and not be in peril, um, which I think is a nice, like, it's a nice breather. Uh- I'm interested to see what the what the destroying city looks like and what like whether that is 
what it looks like on the surface or whether it'll be something else. Because especially Saul has put effort into the city, shaping it in his image, except that the people fucking hate him, right? Yeah. So that that in and of itself adds a very interesting wrinkle to it. Like, you know, mm. are they going to convince the people there to get on their side? Who knows? Only time will yeah, tell. There's, Tune in next episode. There's two things that there's two things that raised my eyebrows in this episode. The first was like I'm very curious what's going on with Ash. And so I'm interested mm-hmm. to see, uh, and the, yeah. the the utterly graceless like dive out of the way of that question was was pretty funny. <laughs> That's oh god, I've I've had that conversation. <laughs> and then um the idea like one of the things that I'm really picking up on is the like and it's not as if it's been subtle. I'm just calling it out as a thing that this episode or this issue really makes obvious is they've been gone a long time mm-hmm. and they have yeah. no idea. Has Saul been sitting around like jerking off? Has he been setting up an, a vast complicated plot? Like have people forgotten them? Have people maybe somewhat less than forgotten them? It's the degree to which in any given place they are expected there is plot to encounter is mm-hmm. like a really weird variable question that I'm finding really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of it is Saul and yeah. And it's fascinating too, to me because they're, they are by choice going places that they've never been before. Mm-hmm. Um, so even they, that's probably somewhat unknown to them too. Yeah. And they go to someplace they've never been and they encounter the church is making Isabel read her diaries. The church seemingly is like based on her teenage writings and they're encountering, you know, a whole city that has been rebuilt in Saul's image, worshiping them as saviors, according to some prophecy. Yeah. I guess they, I mean, they're heroes across the world. They're not just heroes. They're the paragons. Yeah. Which is creepy. Something that they, it's, of course, we get like a funny little nesting of it, but we learn a little bit about how the, the master works and the grandmasters work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause we get a, we get a story about basically, uh, that like, you know, he's telling a story about how wizards used to, uh, (laughs) I love this, uh, once, the the Wizards of the Dreaming Land spells drifted from their minds as they were cast. Each day they had to learn them now. Okay, so they're just <laughs> D&D wizards. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. fuck that. That's, we, got some, we got some spell slots here. Yeah. We learn that the, what the Grandmaster, like the Master can do, or, or the Grandmaster in this case, they can make new rules. Um, and so he makes a new rule that... When uh, a wizard casts a spell, they must also pay for it with a memory. That it seemed like it seemed like they could keep the knowledge of their spells, but they'd lose a memory instead instead of the spell. Yeah. Which oof. Yeah, which leads to an archmage who goes who has like he has Hydra babies, which makes me ask, 
yo, bro, what you sticking your dick in? Uh, uh, appar- <laughs> apparently, I went back to that, and there's a... Um, apparently, his children were stolen and transformed into a many-headed monster and then spirited yeah. away. Um, right, but I, right. I honestly, honestly, your interpretation is better. Yeah. Monster fucking would have would have been more interesting than yeah. transformations. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I just expect all wizards to be nasty uh, <laughs> because, frankly, I love Discworld wizards, but I truly, I, I, you know, those are not my wizards. <laughs> uh, they, they are just nasty in different ways. Yeah, they're very, oh my god, they're very nasty in different ways. Um, but yeah, the, the like, oh, it accidentally kills his children because he, he forgot they were monsters. And yeah, that that is, I find that to be interesting. And it's like, it's a nice way to slip in, okay, that like, okay, this is what the master can do. Yeah, and... God, I mean, this is this is a this is a party like this is a this is a party that would be solved by one therapy if they could ever talk about it. Um, <laughs> antidepressants and maybe estrogen. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, like the the uh, everybody dumps a little bit and in their own in their own way. And. Uh, I, I like the interesting point where Isabel says, "Like, oh hey, I was wondering if we were ever going to talk about you, Ash. Like, we didn't really have the words to do it then, but we do now." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it's yeah, a, and Ash is <laughs> punching like, out. Fuck no. Yeah, yeah, and and we well, get that's what what I like about it is that it's it's not even as graceful as fuck no, which has its own blunt grace. It's like, just like hurling herself into like behind somebody else as if like, you know what it is? You know how ninjas have those smoke bombs? Yeah. <laughs> it's pocket sand. It's yeah. Pocket it's pocket sand, sand to, to a ninja smoke bomb. That is her move. She just like throws a handful of sand in the air and hopes nobody will be looking at her when it's, when it settles and settles to the ground. So one thing that I found interesting is that we the only character who we've had internality for thus far is Ash. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know whether that will stay the same or whether that will change as we continue going. Um, but we get we get Ash's thoughts or at least some of them. You know, Ash's thoughts on the the whole like gender question here is being Ash was always easy. It gave me so many permissions. I enjoyed it. That's all I can give you. Make of it what you will. Yeah. Which, I mean, like, you know, back in 1991, um, I, I cannot remember the name of the law, but Margaret Thatcher's evil of, you know, basically it, it, it is the it was the British version of the of like, don't say gay, um, yeah. which forbid like, you know, any sort of discussion of the uh, of sexuality in British schools. Yeah, um, I, I'm I'm oversimplifying that um, because I'm not British and I don't have the like I'm I'm not familiar with it. But it created an incredibly hostile environment and like, hey, this is like, I mean, this is one thing that fantasy, like you know, and role playing games let you do better than maybe, I mean, better than a lot of mediums mm-hmm. is permission to be like permission to try to be something you are not. And to make mistakes in a safe way, mm-hmm. 
what Ash like said about that is is all, and it's a very common thing. But it's also nice to just like see it acknowledged on page. Um, yeah, of like that's a real thing, and you know, even if it's like, I know, I know plenty of people who are like perfectly fine with being like who are perfectly comfortable in their gender uh, or their, their assigned gender and are happily cis, but are like, Hey, yeah, no, I like playing RPGs and it's like, I'm a guy who I always play gal characters because, you know, I like doing that because it's like, you know, it's a place I can do that and, you know, just explore that and have an emotional event, which is what games are good for. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just girls have better the- fashion in video games. Uh, yeah. <laughs> nine, nine, it's just the truth. Nine video games out of 10, the female characters have better fashion. Guys get Final Fantasy pants and fucking shoulders, big old yeah. shoulder, uh, shoulder blade, not shoulder blade, shoulder pads. And female characters get all the cool fucking outfits. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and, and if you're playing Mass Effect, better voice acting too. I'm told that there are people who do, in fact, play Mass Effect with the male character i think i think that i think that outside the first game like i think that i think that past the first game having guy shep is perfectly fine i think it's just like the delivery on like the first game is bad it's just like you know there's no competing with with like jennifer hale in the first one yeah um and i mean i'm not gonna say that it's like night and day but personally for me playing as a gal i think the romance options are better yeah the the only the only exception to that is jack i i think jack is jack is like the one reason i would play uh a which guy one Shepherd. which one lets you bang garris femship femship that's why everybody yeah. i know <laughs> wants to bang garris in a really aggressive way so uh yeah yes. i mean it's like yep. if you want if you if you want to play total monster fucker i think like the the best way like the best way to go about it is femship yeah femship femship gets all the monster fucker options because you've got you've got garris you've got um the frog boy yeah etc like the only the only one you're locked out of as as femship is tally yeah yeah and you know honestly i'm fine with not having the cutscene where they like reveal what she is under the suit because she's just basically like a space elf and i always wanted to imagine her as like something way more fucked up just a bucket of squid <laughs> yeah no like super cyborgy all right uh, a cyborg squid sure sure there there's a very funny uh, there there's a very funny thing of like um Robert Evans, who is the the who is a who's a writer and journalist and host of the Behind the Bastards pod, is playing Baldur's Gate right now, and he is in, he has initiated a romance with an Elithid, <laughs> and he's like, I, I I fucked a mind flare. This is the best game ever. <laughs> Which, wow! If you like war crimes. Behind the Bastards pod, possibly the only, possibly the only uh, podcast with a higher war crimes per episode content. Uh, <laughs> but are they as enthusiastic about it as we are? Mm. Uh. <laughs> I mean, do they have a do they have a a an entertaining uh, a light hearted horn sound effect that plays when we talk about them? No, um, which is at least nice. All right, still uh, on top. <laughs> 
one thing one thing I do love is that like when the counselor comes to the group and is like we have studied the ancient paths and consulted ancient wisdom and I'm like I've done this before I have received this model like there is that GM who is like I have five paragraphs of info dump I'm about to give you about what your quest is going to be for the next like 30 sessions and the entire group is like this better not be oh sold don't please no no yeah, yeah, the whole party is preparing to be pissed off about it. It's which, very good. Which I kind of love that it's a shitty quest. Like, yeah, and yeah. Well, it makes sense for a kid that like has been stuck in this fantasy land for the last twenty years or whatever. Like that, his he's over prepped. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's a very like video game e quest too. Yeah, right. Like. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that that it's like very much in the much more along the lines of like video game RPGs where I mean like pen and paper also have many fetch quests but like video game RPGs are particularly subject to the yeah. like you know go to three dungeons and collect the key from each one and evade the 12 yeah, traps. Yeah, like a Triforce wait, fucking you mean, thing. Wait, you, right. you mean the I mean, hold on, let's do it. Let's do a little bit more specifically. The BioWare formula of you need to go to three locations, pull a map from E or pull in from pull ancient information from an ancient artifact from each. Um maybe four no, four, four, four. Uh during which we will go through the entire hero's journey. Uh, <laughs> yes. I'm not like dishing on this because like it works yeah it works because it's like familiar but at the same time i have just described um knights of the old republic one mass effect one and dragon age origins <laughs> yeah <laughs> i do also like that i i think it's chuck who's, who like who just says like shitty story too he was always a railroader yeah. yeah, which I think is just very funny of like. Well, especially coming from Chuck, who is a, as Ash has described it, a shitty fantasy writer. Yeah, which and, I think is very funny. And Chuck, see, Chuck seems like the person who plays a rogue to specifically to fuck with the GM's plans. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, frankly, worse than a war criminal. Yeah, honestly, honestly, all of these characters seem like. At least, at least in their like teenage selves, just to be like the worst people to have at your table, because like, like the the thing of like where you're jamming and you're like, I have a cool story that I'm really excited to explore with you guys, and you're like laying it out, and everybody's like, "Fuck you! I'm gonna go like explore the woods for no yeah. reason." No, they all seemed awful. Yeah, I don't know. So I'm reading. I'm I'm reading this through like the. The huge omnibus um, that, uh, like, I, I, like I just have the entire book in like one file. Um, yeah, and I don't know if it's in the trades because my trades are currently out. But between the issues in the omnibus, there are like simple like black and white drawings that uh, separate the issues. Oh, are those the ones with like the the little uh, like um, character introduction ones? Um, yeah, so, so like there, like, yeah, there's like one that's like Isabel and her, like in her room, like doing, like writing at a diary. Um, oh no, I no. don't have those. Okay. Um, there, the one, the one after the, one of the ones after this issue, um, is it's a picture of, uh, 
Angela and Ash's dog. Um, I'm just going to put it in uh, chat there. It's just like, uh, it's very cute. That is very cute. The the other the other uh, image between this one and the next one uh, is fucking Chuck with an unplugged boot box and he looks like a douche in it. Um, of course. Perfect. <laughs> like truly, perfect. I, he's perfect character design because I hate him so much. And like, you know, it, it's, uh, we also learned that uh, Angela's first boyfriend was Chuck. Oh God. But, but we get, we get like, a shred of character development for Chuck as he's like, I'm sorry yeah. for being a terrible boyfriend. Yeah. Uh, everybody's like, it's like, he's like, was it so bad to date me? Yes. Yes, it was. You were a shitty first boyfriend. And like Chuck apologizing. I, I, I mean, I think this is one of the things that I like about Chuck is that he, a lot of the time I hate him, but then he has moments of like, okay, I actually like really like, I either like, empathize with him or like he feels very real and it's just enough to keep me real then and i hate it yeah okay uh do we have anything else we want to talk about for this one no i think that covers i think we we strayed very far afield yeah i I mean that was gonna happen i think yeah so all right so next time we are going to be covering issues five and six uh issue five is i mean maybe the most apt title i've ever seen premise rejection and <laughs> issue six is the grind i can't remember what we did for the for the uh outro for the last one so we're just gonna do uh we're gonna just figure something out here um until next time just just keep rolling with it the babylon project is an independent production all views expressed on the show are our own Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license. Sorry, hold on. Uh, I recorded Atherbeth with Steph the other day. And uh, because I'm very good at my job, uh, I did my research. And uh, it's still up on my screen right here. Uh, And I'll give you a preview of what the next Atherbeth episode is by reading you my research, which is right here. Cult following. Stir up trouble. Maybe she's barn with it. Past your bedtime. Financially stable. I'm really proud of that one. <laughs> it's a horse episode. Yeah, it is. Well, it's it's a oh. it's a Rohan episode, and oh. uh, Steph did the outline. So I I basically just did horse puns for 90 minutes. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Those are the ones Honestly. I didn't use. <laughs> oh no, dude, it was That's, great. That's good. That's good. Yeah, it was great. I had a lot of fun with it.